When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as all the topics that you're talking about with insight and analysis. I'm Ian McGarry and I'm delighted to say we're being joined by the man who sees Things through the window that no one else seems to see, and that, of course, is transfer guru Duncan Castles. Also delighted to say we're joined by an old friend of the podcast, and, of course, he is chief football uh, writer and also football correspondent, I should have said, of the Sunday Times, as well as renowned author um, Jonathan Northcroft. Hello, Johnny. Hi, Ian. Oh, the, the uh, intros are getting better every time I come on. I, I, I wonder what I'll be if I uh, come on in three years' time. I'll be like World Emperor or something. Yeah, well, you know what? Your uh, your Aberdonian <laughs> friend, uh, Mister Hunter, was on. I gave him the intro of all intros, and, and he, <laughs> the only one, he, the only one he liked was um, Dandy Legend. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, he fits that. He fits that. Bill. He does. He does. So it's Friday's podcast today, people. We've had a full week of transfer shenanigans, none more so than the ongoing saga of one Bruno Fernandes. Sporting Lisbon have been trying to agree with Manchester United. Manchester United have been trying to agree everything with Sporting Lisbon. Duncan, you have been leading, of course, the news on this. Seems to be there's more twists and turns to come. Is that correct? Uh, Definitely more twists and turns to come. I've spent uh, most of the morning making phone calls and and getting updates on where things stand. Um, Problems started uh, last night when uh, Sporting let it be known that the offer Manchester United had made to them uh, for the player in cash was well below their expectations. So they, they've offered 50 million euros guaranteed and 30 millions in, bon- in bonuses. But those bonuses are dependent on winning the Premier League, winning the Champions League and Bruno, um, I think, finishing in the top three in the Ballon d'Or. And Sporting have taken the position that the way Manchester United are playing at the moment, that amounts to an offer of €50 million, which is less than they were offered by Tottenham in the summer. So Tottenham offered them 45 guaranteed with 20 in bonuses, and about 10 of those in bonuses were achievable. Uh, Sporting say they want a minimum of £65 million guaranteed, and... Uh, the bonuses to be achievable. Um, last night, I'm told the sporting president, Federico Verandes, called Bruno Fernandes to uh, inform him that they would not be accepting Manchester United's offer as they, as they stand. And Bruno's response, I'm told, was one of anger, um, saying, you basically, you cut my legs off in the summer. I was ready to go to the, the Premier League then. I had an offer to go to a club I wanted to go to. Um, I waited on the premise that you would let me go in January. I need to go now. Um, And there is an implicit threat that, um, despite all the stuff that Sporting have been saying about wanting Bruno to play in their derby match against Benfica tonight, that Bruno may not play in that game. 
and is indicating that he, he, if Sporting do not do a deal with Manchester United, he might not play in the match. Um, on top of this, Sporting are saying that they have, they're briefing uh, journalists in Portugal that they have removed Jesse Footy, the agency that had the mandate to sell Bruno in this window from the deal. Uh, and that uh, they are negotiating direct with Manchester United to try and come to a solution, and that um, Bruno Fernandes' agent, Miguel Pino, is working with someone at Manchester United to come to a solution. And that obviously would be a way of extracting some of the money that would be due in commission to the agency from Manchester United for the transfer and putting it into Sporting's pocket. Now, um, information I have at present, and this, you know, this is very much ongoing, and um, they, they, all the parties are trying to get to a solution today so that at least Bruno can get on the field, and Bruno's trying to get a solution where he knows that he gets to Manchester United, where he's, he's um, already agreed personal terms. Um, is that Sporting's key problem here is that they're only due 50% of the transfer fee because they um, are due to pay money to Sampdoria for uh, a percentage that they owe them from the original purchase of the player. They're also due money to uh, financial institutions that they have loans from um, to, that they took to get them out of financial trouble a couple of years ago. So that they're not going to get much of this deal. They feel that if they accept 50 million as a fee, they're going to be embarrassed down the line. For example, if Jetson Fernandez has moved to Tottenham, is activated and that option to buy at 50 million is activated and the sporting fans will say oh look um, Bruno Fernandes was the best player in the in the Portuguese league the last two years and you've sold him for the same price as Benfica have sold a, a talent who's not even played a, a full season in the team. Um, another element here is I'm told that uh, the agency that Miguel Pino runs is actually uh, part owned by Bruno Fernandes himself. So um, a percentage of the commission would be due to Bruno if his agent, Miguel Pino, operates the eventual deal. Um, so it's a very open position. Um, Jesse Futi are saying that it's not the case that, uh, that they've been removed from the deal and they're saying that as things stand, um, they do not expect the player to go to Manchester United. But you, what you see are a lot of parties fighting over the, the final stages of the transaction. A player who definitely wants to go, um, definitely wants to move to the Premier League, doesn't want to stay any longer, feels he's, he's paid his dues to the club and a club fighting to get as much money as they can out of it. And then some agents also in the process trying to ensure that they get their um, cuts of the deal. As, as one observer I talked to this morning said, it's money time. That's when it gets complicated in these transfers. So, Duncan, if Bruno Fernandes is um, both a client and a shareholder in the agency which he signed up to, does this make this the first example ever of first-party ownership? <laughs> <laughs> and, and indeed, is that against Premier League rules? I'm asking myself. I'm going to have to check there, I think. Um, Johnny, we're used to transfers being complicated mm. or messy sometimes as well. Given that this whole process uh, and negotiation began almost seven months ago, this does seem to be particularly uh, you know, protracted in this case. And 
in in your experience, especially um, of covering Manchester United, yeah, do you, do you think they well are they at fault in any way for this, or do you think this has just been a they've been a victim of circumstance? Well, I think there's a couple of things going on here. Uh, I, I think we have to now start thinking a little bit differently about Manchester United in terms of transfers, um, because there's there's a conscious there's a conscious effort from the top of the club to you know draw a line under the the era of you know the Alexis Sanchez type deals, um, the the glamorous, high profile, almost sort of show offy. Uh, transfer activity that, 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 that sort of culminated in him but probably started a long time before and De Maria, Pogba, all that kind of stuff. There's a conscious decision not just to change the profile of player that they're going for, i.e., you know, try to go for younger, uh, maybe less established but players with more potential, but also, I guess, the types of deal. Um, I think they are trying to be a lot more disciplined in their, in their transfer spending. I suspect that's not entirely done for sporting reasons. I, I, I think you've got to look at United's financial figures, which are starting to flatline commercially. Um, they haven't been filling the stadium this this year. Um, there's, there's there's more pressure now to, to sort of, I guess, balance the, the, the budget. And, and if they don't qualify for the Champions League, there's a there's an issue there. But but really, this goes back to, to, to Jose Mourinho's last season, where he found that there was a new approach to transfers, that there was, there was a lot more, I guess, caution and discipline being exercised. And I think that's where, that's the starting point for how this could develop into a protracted negotiation. There was caution in the summer because of priorities. And Solskjaer um, actually spoke about this today at the press conference I've just been at, that, that when he had to prioritise, he prioritised centre-back and, and, and right-back, you know, that old thing of building from the back, because it was clear that United weren't going to go for a big transfer window of, of, of you know, four or five signings. Um, so I think that's where the caution comes from. Um, I think there's another element you can't ignore, which is that, you know, Edward Wood and Matt Judge um, do not operate with a sporting director, as we know, try and do these things by themselves. You could argue that one of the... I mean, people look at sporting directors as people who choose the, the, the talent. I actually think that the best way to think about them is more people who execute the deals for that talent rather than people who choose the talent. You know, and, and anyone that knows the continental model will know that. But, but in Britain, we've got this idea it's the sporting director chooses the talent. So they don't have someone executing these deals. They're trying to do it themselves. They, they quite often try and um, be quite clever with, with the deals. And, and you could say that some of them have worked, but maybe a lot of them... Um, have kind of got bogged down in 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 some of the the, the I guess the offers that Sporting would now say are are um, the buying club trying to be too clever. But I think I think the final thing, and I've rambled on a little bit, is that it's clear. Listen, fascinating. Listen to Duncan. It's clear that United's strategy is that old one of get the player on board first, and then with a really strong hand, with almost the bird in hand, then. Try and browbeat the selling club to accept as low uh, a deal as possible. That that's an old-fashioned transfer strategy. It quite often works, but the risk you run of that, of course, is um, twofold. One, if the if the selling club just gets so fed up that they walk away. But two, if another buyer comes in, and I would guess that Sporting at the moment will be desperately trying to get someone else into the market um, because then that would put the ball back in United's court. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And I think Manchester United are trying to exploit 
um, Sporting's economic vulnerabilities and, and they, they think there aren't any other bidders at present. And I think they're right. I don't think there's a direct competitor for them. The issue is whether Sporting are, are ready to wait until the summer mm. to have another go with a more open market. But they also have the issue of can we take a risk that Bruno's form drops or more importantly, he, he gets injured and we can't sell him in the summer. And then they have, I'm told, real financial difficulties and they don't have an alternative player in their in their midst that they can sell and raise that kind of money from. Um, I think your point about trying to save money is very important here. Um, we've got to remember that um, Ed Woodward and Matt Judge's roles at Manchester United are premised upon making money for the Glazer family, turning a profit for the club. And if they can save 10, 15 million euros in a deal by negotiating in this way, that is going to be looked on well by the Glazers. Another element here is something I've been told by a couple of people who have been involved in negotiations with Manchester United over the last uh, six months or so is that when they, they negotiate deals with Matt Judge and Ed Woodward, they can only go so far with those two that, that, that whatever agreements they come to in the room with the, with the pair of proposals they make to them, they have to be signed off by the Glazers. So you're not in a position where you're negotiating directly with the person who can make a final decision. And obviously that results in a, in a drawn out process. Um, and I think also you're right that they're trying to be more strategic. Um, they, you know, they've set their stall on this um, younger players, primarily British players, uh, cultural reboot, takes several seasons to get back to, to where we want to go. Our scouting system's really good now. We look at lots of players, we make assessments, we don't overpay for them. And, mm. and their behaviour in this window does fit with that because I'm told that they've, they've tried to get Jack Grealish from Aston Villa um, and failed because the pricing from Aston Villa is too high and they don't want to sell a player while they're their, their key player while they're trying to retain uh, position in the Premier League and I'm told they've also made a very very significant offer for a 16 year old at Birmingham City uh, Jude Bellingham who is broken into the Birmingham team and become a, an established part of that and is being scouted mm. by pretty much everyone across Europe um, Arsenal I'm told are also very keen on him um, they, he's in an interesting position in that his father is uh, a policeman and he uh, is being strategic about his son's career. He doesn't want to move somewhere where he won't get game time. He's seen what's happened to other young English players who've, who've bitten on big cash offers from, from top clubs at that age and, and ended up not playing and seen their career go backwards. So it doesn't seem United can use the strategy of convincing a young player to accept to join them and then force them out of the club for a limited amount of money. And what I'm told um, from a contact at Birmingham is that the offer from Manchester United is £25 million guaranteed for mm. Bellingham. So it seems that what United are trying to do is present Birmingham with an offer so substantial that it's very difficult for them to turn down and that for them to put pressure on the player and his father to accept that move and go to United. And, you know, a 16-year-old Englishman who, who's a box-to-box -box midfielder, um, good on the ball. I think the people I'm talking to, the one question is where he needs to develop his decision-making a bit on the ball, but that very much fit, fits this cultural reboot plan. And, and, and I'm not saying it's, it's Bellingham or Bruno Fernandes. The, the sense is that they will do two midfielders in this window if they can get money right on those two deals. So we could see Bellingham and Bruno Fernandes coming in if they manage to get that solution with Sporting in the, uh, in the next couple of weeks.
And another um, thread of this transfer intrigue is the situation of Bubukari Samari at Lille, who um, is certainly being uh, marketed aggressively uh, by the Ligue 1 club. Um, they feel like his value is at its top stock and they would like to sell in this window. Um, lots of stories about him being, uh, needing to choose between Manchester United and Chelsea. So, Duncan, my information from Chelsea is that they're not looking for a central midfielder. Frank Lampard is very happy with the uh, rotation of uh, Kovacic, um, Conte, Jorginho and Loftus-Cheek. Uh, so where that's coming from, I don't know, although I suspect Chelsea have been used as leverage by a certain agent involved in the marketing of this player in order to try and force Manchester United into a concrete bid, which they've yet to do. Is there a way, do we think, that perhaps um, both players, and I'm taking Bellingham out of the equation as perhaps he's a development player, um, and that it would be uh, Bubakari and Fernandez possibly at Manchester United? Or indeed, that if, as Johnny suggested, Sporting or, or United get fed up with the whole Bruno Fernandez saga, that they might just go for Bubakari? Bubakari is a very different player to Bruno Fernandez, a, a, a big holding midfielder, um, a guy who brings physique. To your midfield and uh, you know kind of tight, uh, clever passer of the ball, but he's not someone who scores goals and and creates goals. He's just twenty. He's he's attracting that attention of he's in that category of player who's performing well for a good club in a good league and being scouted. And Leo's decision here is they have two and a half years of contract left on the player. The agent, I'm told, is a problem. They are worried that uh, the agent will run the contract down. Um, and not and uh, and they won't get full value on him, and they find him difficult to control. I'm told that the agent is asking 20% of the transfer fee for a deal to happen in this window. So that there's a, a a good deal of um, of bartering going on there, trying to trying to get themselves in a situation where they can actually sell. Um, yes, Chelsea have been mentioned, and and my information also from the Chelsea end is that they won't be doing a central midfielder in this window. So I think the only way that would happen is if um, Roman Abramovich or Marina Granovskaya decided to impose the player on, on, on the squad because it's not something Frank Lampard wants. Manchester United have been in contact and have been watching the player, which fits very much with the way they're scouting and they're looking at these type of players. I'm told that Internazionale like him a lot. He's uh, He is a player you would see fitting with Antonio Conte's system and would be an alternative to Nemanja Matic, who they've tried to sign. But... What I'm hearing from the inter end is that they'd be, it's very difficult for them to put that kind of transfer fee down in this window where Conte is trying to get a lot of experienced players from the Premier League. He's just managed to get Ashley Young from Manchester United after he forced his way out of there. He's um, has personal terms agreed with Christian Eriksen and they're in a negotiation process with Tottenham over the transfer fee. Trying to get Olivier Giroud, who's, who's well paid too. So... Um, Probably realistically, you're looking at 40 million euros, 40 to 50 million euros for Sumari in this window. I'm not sure Inter can do it. And as I say, the complications and the background of the deal are the ones that um, might prevent anything from happening in this window. I'm struggling to think of a player available in this window who Inter haven't been interested in, Johnny. It seems, <laughs> like, it seems like they are the kind of, you know, the pick and mix uh, kings of uh, the January window in terms of this uh, particular purchase. Um, opportunity and uh, by the way we should just update you as well because we, uh, Ashley Young has now arrived in Milan 
um, I'm told, and uh, will be taking his medical in the next three to four hours. Uh, Christian Eriksen, you mentioned Duncan. Um, we reported, of course, on the uh, transfer window at the beginning of last week that Inter Milan were in pole position to sign the player, uh, certainly on a pre-contract agreement, because, of course, he's out of contract with Tottenham in the summer, in six months' time, uh, can sign a pre-contract now. We also um, reported that Real Madrid uh, had a meeting scheduled with um, Ericsson's agent, Martin Schutz, uh, for this week. That meeting did take place in Madrid on Wednesday. My information uh, from the meeting is that Madrid did not make a detailed offer for the player, i.e. there was no written proposal in terms of contract uh, terms. They made uh, There was a conversation around the salary he could expect, net, etc., and the fact that it would be a four-year deal if he joined in the summer, four and a half if they managed to get him out of at Spurs in this window. Of course, the signing of Donny van der Beek from Ajax uh, since then uh, limits the possibility of Ericsson's chances of going to the Santiago Bernabeu. Uh, although uh, it is the case that Zinedine Zidane would like to offload both Luka Modric and Toni Kroos this summer, uh, not obviously like-for-like like players, uh, but two playmakers. Well, I've seen Real Madrid play with three playmakers before, so I wouldn't rule it out. But, of course, as you mentioned, Duncan, with, in the case of Ericsson, uh, it is about um, whether or not Daniel Levy will lower the €25 million Euro asking price to release him in this window or whether or not that has to run until the end of the season. Johnny, you've watched Spurs last week, I believe. Um Ericsson has been a bit of a shadow of himself, clearly um, suffering his form, suffering under mm. the pressure of what his next move is. How do Tottenham replace him? And indeed, if they can, given well, what they paid from from Ajax five years ago, uh, and is it maybe time for Tottenham to look to, to play in a different way, um, given that it's not been working for them? Or do you think they just need to go out and buy a number 10, uh, someone exactly like Ericsson? No, I, I I think there's a there's a rethink needed at Spurs. Um, but Ericsson's become a bit of a symbol of, of certainly of discontent when you look at the fans' reaction to him last week. Um, but he's only a symptom of a problem, and this, the problem is just the end of a cycle. It's the end of the the Pochettino cycle, um, and um, really um, a very sort of dramatic end to it. I think because it, I mean, if you just take the mid the midfield, it's almost sort of collapsed in the last. In the last year, you know, you've you've got Ericsson who has been you know playing with with half a mind on on leaving since the start of the season. You've had the the sort of inability of Eric Dyer to get back to to the levels that that he certainly once looked capable of. Um, you've got the decline of of uh, perhaps slight decline of Sissoko athletically as he moves into his thirties. So, you know, him going off the ball where he was, of course, they had, they never replaced. Dembele, Wanyama went, um, you know, too far with the, in terms of age and injury problems, um, and you know, it's almost like Harry Winks has been the, the boy stood on the burning deck, and at, at sometimes, um, adding to that that Delhi, I think, has gone through a process where he's finally decided, or, or, or you, you know, Jose Mourinho's decided as well that he's a second striker. So that was somebody that used to be considered a midfielder. Um, the Lo Celso loan is, is is perhaps hasn't quite worked yet. Although I, I like him when I see him, it's just he he clearly hasn't been at a consistent level in training because he hasn't been picked consistently. And then you've got the Indombly situation, um, 
where despite the, the, the big fee paid for him, um, Mourinho clearly has reservations about his availability. And, and there are you know, question marks in my mind as to whether, I think he's a very good player, but I, I'm not sure if he's quite the player Tottenham thought they were signing in, in terms of his profile. So I think the whole midfield's a bit of a mess. I mean, they, they played well against Liverpool last week, but they, they played well by almost bypassing midfield at times, counter-attacking um, very quickly um, and, and, and cleverly, you know, but defending well and, and almost getting around the fact that they, they didn't really have a midfield department. So I, I think there is a rethink needed that goes way beyond what to do after Christian Eriksen for Spurs. Just to take you up on your point about Ndombele uh, there, Johnny, I think what you've said about Jose Mourinho not being sure what player he's got is absolutely correct. Uh, sources uh, have told me from Tottenham that um, they obviously scouted him, Dombele, uh, but you can only scout a player when he's playing uh, in front of his you know, crowd in a competitive match. Um, from what I hear, they didn't scout what he does off the pitch very well. Um, this is a guy who um, loses focus very easily, I'm told. Um, at training, he can be one day 100% and the next day he can be 15%. And he's caused for huge amounts of frustration for uh, Mourinho and the coaching staff at Tottenham because he appears to be a player who, no matter how much you try to motivate, no matter how much you berate him or put your arm around him and you try everything you can to get the best out of him, he simply repeats the same patterns. And that's one of the reasons why he's not making the first team, why he's not even making the bench in some cases, is because he's, he's basically not trusted and they are desperately trying to find out how to resolve that problem. Now, when you spend that amount of money on a player, it seems strange that Tottenham didn't really know what they were getting um, in terms of the player's attitude and mentality and motivation. So um, that's something which they're going to have to resolve as well. Um, Duncan, what's your take on, on the uh, Tottenham midfield and indeed uh, what midfielders are moving doing moving around in Europe in this window? Look, I think Endombele is certainly a problem. You know, we forget that Tottenham uh, spent the most gross in the last uh, transfer window, if you include the guaranteed uh, purchase of uh, Giovanni Lo Celso, they included. Obviously, Endombele was central to that. Obviously, he was a player that Maurizio Pochettino wanted to rebuild his midfield around. Nobody's questioning how talented he is, and we've seen the quality of the passing in, in the games he's played for uh, Tottenham, but I, I'm also hearing their, their issues with his focus and, and with his, um, basically his diet and, and the, the weight he's carrying. They, they feel he's a little bit overweight and that, that that's, he's struggling to get his match fitness back because of that. And, and obviously it's a big problem if you're record signing um, when you've got the, the, the other issues in midfield that uh, Johnny detailed is not reliable. It's a big problem for, for them to solve. And Ericsson told Mourinho would like to have retained him. He would like to have done what he did with Toby Alderweireld, which was sort of say, look, fresh start. Um, you do it for me and I will get you uh, from Daniel Levy the contract that you want uh, that can satisfy you financially and we, we work on together. But Ericsson has insisted that he wants to leave England and, and take that move elsewhere. And it does look very much like it's going to be inter-confident inter they're going to get the player. Um, on Van de Beek, 
Um, what I'm told is that it's not quite signed, but I'm hearing from both the Madrid and the Ajax end that the deal is in place for the summer. And what I'm, I understand is that the guaranteed fee on that will be 47 million euros um, to Ajax, which is a bit less than they, they were hoping to achieve. Um, Van der Beek himself has gone public saying he will definitely be staying for the rest of the season. So I think it, it suits him to finish this season at Ajax and, and move to Madrid in the summer, um, which all, all, I think complicates things not just for Ericsson but also for Bruno Fernandes because that's a club that um, Sporting had been trying to move Bruno Fernandes to uh, Real Madrid and uh, with them taking Van de Beek very much as a, a similar mould of attacking midfielder, um, perhaps that alternative option for them is out and again strengthens Manchester United ha hand in these negotiations. So we've touched on a lot regarding Manchester United and transfers, guys. Let's come on to the small matter of a game at Anfield this Sunday when Liverpool take on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's Manchester United in a game which seems strangely irrelevant uh, in terms of historical context for this particular fixture. Liverpool 27 points behind Liverpool going into this match. Supporters uh, of the Old Trafford club appear to be more obsessed than anything with the idea that they can defeat Liverpool at home. Now, that's saying something as well, given Liverpool's home record, but also, of course, ending their unbeaten run in the Premier League this season and, indeed, a 38-game unbeaten run overall. Johnny, you've been watching these fixtures for many years now. Mm. Um, you, you spoke with Solskjaer this morning. How was his mood regarding you know, the, the whole sort of context of the game? And, and also... It'd be interesting to get your point of view about where both clubs are right now compared mm. to the historical context of this fixture. I mean, it's not shock news, but Ollie was upbeat, perky, smiling and talking about the heritage of Manchester United. So that's the kind of fettle he was in today. Um, but, you know, he 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 is actually someone that, that, that has always thrived on these sort of games, challenges, that's very much what his whole career and the pitch was about. But, you know, if you to start marking him, giving him a report card as a Manchester United manager, well, his performance in the big games has actually been, I'd say, 8 out of 10 when you look at the resources he's had compared to the teams he's, he's, he's been up against. He's, he's done got well. a better record, better record than any other manager against top four clubs, Johnny. Averaging yeah. two points per game and 1.86 goals per game. Doesn't surprise me. Uh, he's, he, he's done well in these games. You know, the obvious point is he's got a counter-attacking strategy which has been ideal against the, the, the bigger teams who, who, who come out and, and counter-attack. But I, I think he's, he's sprung a few tactical surprises in, in these matches and, and, and has achieved success there. He's been, you know, what he's got to solve is how Manchester United break down the, the smaller teams. He's got a good record against Liverpool. Um, you know, Klopp hasn't beaten him yet in, 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 in two attempts. Manchester United were... You know, dropping like flies last season at Old Trafford, and, and managed to to grind out a nil-nil draw, which you know had serious repercussions for Liverpool's title challenge. And they're the only team Liverpool haven't beaten this this season. So, you know, Ollie was positive with 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 good reason. Um, the reality, of course, is that Liverpool are. Um, the the best club team in the world at the moment, not just in terms of title, but I think in in terms of, of of how they back that up on the pitch, they're absolutely formidable. They exert huge physical pressure on you, um, huge pressure on your 
your fitness and and that will be tested um i guess the united team who have had you know key players with even if they're on the pitch they've they've had injury concerns like rashford like maguire and of course they're a bit threadbare at the moment um it's a fascinating one i i i'm in awe of of, of how good liverpool are at the moment and think that they are um probably even ahead of of, of where Klopp would have expected them to be but they're having one of those sort of golden golden periods that a club has where every every single player is 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 playing at their max um the team is working almost on you know autopilot in a good way um in terms of the movements are so coordinated the passing's so good the the work rate is 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 you know 10 out of 10 every week i i'm sure that um Dunk will disagree with me a little bit, but I, I think Solskjaer is is actually doing far better than people um, give him credit for. I think he's doing a transitional job primarily at Manchester United. And if you look at it in those terms, he's fifth in the league. Um, he has He's in one cup semi-final, albeit he's not going to get through, OK? Um, and he's into the, the the fourth round of the FA Cup, and he's doing quite well in in the Europa League, and he's doing that with, you know, when you look at the players he's got on the pitch, he's he's doing that with a squad that that isn't um, quite at the level yet, and and I struggle to see why, um, you know, we all think Chelsea are brilliant, and and I I go along with that. I think I think Frank's doing a, a fantastic job. And Chelsea are really exciting, uh, but I struggle to see why there's such a big gap between the perceptions of Chelsea's season and the perceptions of Manchester United's season. Because the, the table doesn't suggest there's a huge gap. The head-to-head suggests um, there hasn't been a gap at all, and the progress in the cups is in United's favour. So um, I, I, I think we've got to recognise Solskjaer is trying to turn around a massive, massive ocean liner, and. Um, I think has, has has come a long way in twelve months in doing so, but I'm I'm ready to be disabused of that notion by Mr. Castles. Well, more interested in in your perspective on where Manchester United are at the moment and where Liverpool are and how they've got there. So we've got Liverpool on course for a records total in the Premier League, um, despite everything you're saying about Solskjaer and the, the turning the the tanker around. He is on course for a fifty nine point. Um, season in the Premier League, which would be Manchester United's lowest total in the history of the Premier League. But basically, where do you see how Liverpool have gone from never having won a Premier League title to being the predominant force in the Premier League and and guaranteed to win this title? And Manchester United have gone in in the opposite Mm. direction. Well, the, the 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 obvious point, but it's a true point, is that it hasn't happened overnight. It's been one club taking a series of upward steps and another one taking a series of downward steps. To start with Liverpool, you know, there's been a step by step improvement uh, of the squad through um, very well planned and executed transfers, window by window. Um, uh, they ha- you know, the, the, I can't remember the last time they had a bad window. They 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 bring people in at good times and, and the transfer planning there is second to none. Um, they've now got a manager that's into his, well into his fifth year um, and the, the principles he's he's laid down have just been, you know, bled in further and further. You know, Klopp plays a highly positional game and that requires a lot of practice and 
um, you know, doing things automatically, and that's just improved over time with 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 similar group of players. I think Klopp's cracked the the fitness element of how to pace a Premier League season and is getting better and and better at that. Um, and then there's the mentality side of things, and one of the most impressive things is you you look certainly since 2018 that every setback has been used as a platform to do better the following year, the following attempt by Liverpool. They did that in the Champions League, you know, runners up in 2018, winning in 2019. And rather than melting away after coming so close in the Premier League last season, they've actually just used what they learned, um, maintained the, the, the positive confidence aspects, but improved um, the, maybe the ruthlessness and, and it looks like the same pattern will follow, you know, runners up to, to winners. That's been incredible. Um, whereas United's just been, you know, since since Fergie, and I don't I don't buy that, you know, it was all going wrong by the end of Fergie. I mean, yes, the squad wasn't as great as it was, but I'm sure if he'd stayed, he'd have found a way to rebuild it as he always did. But, um, you know, it has just been a descent by United, the descent in terms of, of bad windows following bad windows. Um Although I actually think that um, the last couple of years of transfer dealings have been okay. It's just there was so much damage done, principally in the Van Gaal era, um, in, in going in the wrong direction, the Van Gaal Woodward Galactica era. But I think there's been some repairing of that over the last two or three windows. But you know that that's a factor. The the the, the I guess the self belief um, of the club uh, of the team has has eroded over time. Um, and that's one thing that Solskjaer's positivity is attempting to address to try and to try and put it back. Um, and you'd have to say that they they've they've been overtaken um, on all those angles, fitness tactics by other clubs who've, who've who've just done it a lot better. And now they're 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 in a big big period of catch up like Arsenal are. Um, I don't think I've, I've never seen this rivalry as, as unbalanced in Liverpool's favour. It was probably the same in the 80s, but I wasn't, you know, looking at it close closely then. Um, but of course, the interesting thing is, even in that period in the 80s, Manchester United always overperformed against Liverpool, and, and likewise when Ferguson was at his peak, Liverpool still found ways to knock them out of cups and, and score the odd famous victory against them in the league. So. It's also that classic thing of form, but going out the window. Um, uh, you know, the cliche is true in this particular game. Um, so it's, it, it's fascinating dynamics, but I don't think what United could tolerate is this gap to get any bigger. Um, and it's a pivotal time for them because Liverpool will only keep improving under Klopp and with the team, certainly for the next two or three years. And that's why this is such a critical period for United because the gap, this, this gap, this gap will become embarrassing. Um, if 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 the the, the the directions continue at the moment. So okay. Johnny, so Johnny, rather than um, Graham Hunter's title of Grand Dandy, if we were <laughs> to make if we were to make you uh, Manchester United executive vice chairman in place of Ed Woodward this summer, yeah, um, and you had the option of hiring Maurizio Pochettino or carrying on yeah. with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, what would your decision be? Oh, people are going to call me mental, but I'd keep I'd keep Solskjaer. I would. I think I think he's performed a really valuable role up till now. Um, I'd want to see how the rest of the season pans out. Obviously, um, I don't think they'll hit finish. I think they'll get more than fifty nine points. But um, I think what he's done is he has given identity back. He's also created two or three 
top players for them, really, by um, projecting Greenwood um, and Williams, um, by building on you know the start that McTominay made under Mourinho, which another manager might not have done, might have might have discarded him. So, he did leave. He did leave McTominay out in the first five six mm, weeks. He took over he as did. a kind of symbol of the the changeover from the Mourinho era. But you're you're right. He has a. Uh, He's turned him into a key player for them. He's come round. I, I think he's, and I think his his input into transfers um, has has resulted in a reasonable window last summer. Um, so I think I think I think he needs to be given a little bit more time. And my reservation with Pochettino is is simply that he would he what Pochettino did at Spurs was incredible, but he would be a manager that would want to come in. And just change everything that's happened in the last eighteen months at United and start again. And I think it's, I, I do I do have a sense that they're on the right road. Um, I would be much if I was executive chairman, I'd, I'd be appointing a director of football first and foremost, and I'd be trying to do a little bit better in the other sectors first um, before looking at the the head coach. Never mind being executive chairman, Johnny. Uh, you must be disappointed as I was. And uh, Oli didn't offer you the captain's armband at Manchester United this morning. <laughs> uh, having, having played alongside you in many games, uh, I'd say you're much better equipped for that role than the, the man who's inherited that armband. And it's something I'd like to ask Duncan about, because, Duncan, we have had these conversations about Harry Maguire, and uh, he's, uh, well, he's prone to making mistakes. And probably the last person in your team you want making mistakes is your captain. I guess you weren't surprised by the appointment, Duncan, but do you think it maybe come back to haunt Solskjaer? Um, well, one thing I would say is probably got equivalent levels of pace to, to Johnny Northcroft at centre-back. <laughs> That's very unfair on me, Don't. <laughs> exactly. Let's go back to the no, tanker analogy, no, guys. No. <laughs> um, look, I, I, I can understand why he's made him captain. Um, I don't think it will do him any damage in the sense that uh, he's obviously a, a, an individual who has the personality to captain a team. Um, they don't have uh, centre-backs who are good enough to replace him uh, at present. Uh, there have been problems with his level of performance. Maybe it'll improve his level of performance to get that confidence from the manager. The one thing you would ask is, how does David De Gea take that? because De Gea was made captain after he signed his contract extension at Manchester United and had it um, removed from him not long after he gave a post-match um, press conference after a Newcastle United defeat, which he said uh, the performance hadn't been good enough, or words to that effect. Um, so it maybe has repercussions there, but I, 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 I understand why he's made Maguire captain. Um, just a little bit of update here. I've been told from Portugal that Bruno Fernandes has been included in the squad list that um, Sporting have announced for tonight's game. So if he doesn't play now, we can, we'll know he's, um, he's definitely trying to force their hand. Well, guys, it's Freddie's podcast. And so um, we, will, of course, will finish off with the legendary quickfire round. Before we do that, um, Johnny, you know David Moyes very well, and yeah. um, and we'd just like to get a little bit of insight regarding his return to West Ham, and of course he'll be returning to Everton tomorrow, where they play Carlo Ancelotti's side in the Premier League. Desperate need of points, of course, uh, given their position in the Premier League. Can you see uh, Moyes being the one to pull West Ham out of the fire? Of course, um, he, he did it before with an inf a squad that's not as good as it is at the moment. 
Um, and there are some teams in far bigger trouble than than West Ham. Um, I he, he's quite positive about what he's what he's got in front of him at, at West Ham in terms of the players, but also, also the relationship that he's got with the board there, where um, I think both parties have kind of come to regret the part the the the, the parting a couple of years ago. Um, he actually remained on quite good terms with Sullivan, and although Sullivan. You know, in in the end, ditched him for for Pellegrini. The thing that David, I think, appreciated and does appreciate with Sullivan is that he's a, he's very straight. You kind of know what you're getting with him, and um, he's worked for enough uh, owners or, or or chairman where that's not quite been the case. So I think he, I think he, David's a straight guy, and, and and Sullivan's a straight guy. I think that's those are good conditions. I think he'll want to improve the the, the team a little bit. Um, maybe reduce the age profile of it over time, but has got more than enough in the in the interim to survive. And of course the intrigue is is that if it hadn't been Ancelotti at Everton, it probably would have been um Moyes making his return because they they they, they went quite close to um to pointing him before Carlo became available. So there's a lot of intrigue. Um it's uh I, I actually see it as a bit of a free hit for 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 my friend Mr. Moyes. Um, it would be a coup if he won, uh, but I think the pressure of that Everton situation is already evident. Will already be evident to to Ancelotti, and and it would be seen as a, another blow to Everton's kind of um, self worth if 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 they were beaten by the manager that they they could have brought back. Johnny, you're you're very close to Everton. I've been um, yeah. since you came down to to cover English football how mm. many years ago? I was eighteen. Come up to nineteen. Are you worried about the club at present? They've just announced losses of over a hundred million pounds um, on a, mm. you know a not huge revenue by European standards. They have this extraordinary deal that they're trying to get through where. Um, Alisher Usmanov, who effectively owns the club, um, mm. according to well-informed sources, is, has bought an option uh, to buy the naming rights of a stadium that doesn't even have planning permission for £30 million. And uh, we have other Premier League clubs questioning whether that's a, a related party transaction and, and uh, should be disqualified as to wh- whether they pass... Um, profit and loss rules in the Premier League next season. Um, the squad's a mess still. Do you do you, you see them going in the right direction following Ancelotti's arrival or do you see a potential for them to um, to spiral down the league? I, well, I do think they're in trouble um, or rather I don't think they're out of trouble just because they've appointed a you know, a manager with a glittering CV who, you know, I admire and blah, blah, blah. But I'm still not convinced he's exactly the right fit for them. Um, and I think that good as he, good as Ancelotti is, there's, there's significant problems in, in how that club's run. Recruitment's been a basket case. Um, there is a, such a, there is a, I mean, the profit and sustainability rules are going to be a test for Everton. Um, you know, you don't even have to see their accounts. You just have to look at the headline figures over the last couple of years to to, to realise 
that so that's you know that 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 Usmanov deal of the stadium will be very closely scrutinised. If that goes the wrong way for Everton, they could be in trouble. Um, I don't I mean look, I don't I, I don't see them in relegation trouble anytime soon because of Ancelotti's qualities and they have enough good players and the backers they've got are very rich, Mashiri and, and Usmanov. So you know I don't I don't see that, but there are other fates a football club can. Um, suffer and and the one that Everton are suffering and have got to st- try and stop suffering is being you know left left behind by um, not just the elite clubs where they've got pretensions of joining but the the the, the sort of clubs that are most, you know chasing the, the the elite pack and at the moment they're a long way behind Leicester and and Wolves for example and there's a I've, I've I've never known quite such a um, I, I don't know if anger or despondency or a combination of both is is the right way to describe it. But but the mood among Everton fans is is really frustrated more than I've ever known, um, and they put up with a lot put up with a lot in that eighteen or nineteen years um, that I've covered them. You know, particularly in the last eight or nine of those years. Um, so. Or six or seven of those years, so I, I, there's a there's a point where those fans um, will, and they, you know, there's already been that incident of training at the training ground where we'll make their voices heard. And of course, if you're trying to move to a new stadium and and probably hike up the season ticket prices and and do all that kind of stuff, then that that side of things really needs to be sorted out. Um, I just, it, it has to be a wait and see for me because good as Ancelotti is. That is, I, I talked about Man United being a tanker, but I think Everton are, uh, you know, a, ta- a tanker with with the engines firing in opposite directions at the moment, and that's going to be tough to turn around. <laughs> and Liverpool supporters <laughs> are sending anti-ship missiles at them every time they have a bad result. <laughs> speaking of shots across, speaking of shots across the bow, uh, regular listeners will not be surprised to hear we've had a letter of warning from uh, the government committee regarding trading standards and descriptions. Uh, and I'll just summarise it for you. It says, Dear Sirs at Transfer the Podcast, every Friday you claim to have a quick fire round when consistently Mr Duncan Castles turns us into a marathon. Could you please <laughs> desist from making this into some kind of uh, Leo Tolstoy novel and instead stick to the quick fire part of it? So uh, I'm going to insist, therefore, that both Johnny and Duncan give me quick-fire answers to this uh, Friday's quick-fire question. It's very simple, boys. I just want you to give me your prediction for Liverpool versus Man United on Sunday. Uh, you're allowed to give a goal scorecast if you like, uh, and even a little bit of tactical analysis, but please don't put us in trouble anymore with the government. Well, I'll give you uh, 2-0 at Liverpool, not conceding goals, they're in such prime form. Um, and despite my Solskjaer loving earlier on, I think this is a, a, a task too much for him at the moment. Excellent, thank you, Duncan. I'm starting the stopwatch now. Well, you'll be pleased to know that um, when I did that little bit on uh, Today FM in Ireland with Dave Moore, one of our our fans uh, on Irish Radio yesterday, he he requested specifically I didn't do it quick fire style because we only had a limited number of minutes. On the, <laughs> <laughs> Thus proving his his loyal listenership then to you, yes, Ian, to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think, as Johnny pointed out, this is a game that suits Manchester United. Um, 
Solskjaer did come up with a very clever tactical ruse in the last game, which Klopp took a long time to sort out, which was to play with three centre-backs working in Liverpool's forwards and the wing-backs um, pinning back uh, Alexander-Arnold and Robertson, which, as we know, is one of the main sources of, of goals and assists for Liverpool. Um, I think they've got a chance of getting a result in this uh, because they play that counter-attacking football and they're quite happy to, they've got an excuse to sit in a deep block and, and wait for them. But you'd like to see Klopp coming up with the solutions, um, having learned his lesson from the last game and therefore I'll go for a Liverpool win. There we have it, people. Uh, a unanimous decision from Johnny and Duncan on a Liverpool win on Sunday. Of course, uh, whether that is the case, whether it's not, you can continue the debate with us uh, on our social media channels. That's at Transfer Podcast on Twitter as well as Facebook and Instagram. Duncan's at Duncan.Castles on Instagram. And of course, if you want to get in touch individually, uh, Johnny's at J Northcroft and Duncan's at Duncan Castles. And I am at the unfathomable Garble SJ. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, and we know thousands of you do, as you will probably have noticed, we went smashing through the 1.75 million listeners barrier this week. Uh, quite a remarkable achievement. When you think about the fact we're only two and a half years into this podcast, thank you very much to all our listeners for your loyalty, for your engagement, and of course, for keeping us right at the top of those podcast charts. We will be back on Monday. Um, if before then you want to give us a five-star review, review on iTunes, and please do, that helps us expand the community. But of course... Uh, with uh, still, still a lot of time left in transfer window to go and with a full expectation that most deals are yet to be done, including Bruno Fernandes, we will see you through the transfer window on Monday. For now, thanks for listening. Yeah.